If a small flock of cartoon bluebirds didn't help you get dressed this morning, that just means you haven't yet listened to Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. No, the black dress slacks, please. Thank you. And now, Jim Hill. Welcome to Fine Tuning with Drew Taylor, your one-stop shop when it comes to animation news and commentary. I'm Drew's co-host, entertainment writer Jim Hill, and when Drew and I were, were sketching out this week's show, we were starting with Pinocchio. That's right, Drew? Or Yeah, yeah. I mean, that was until yesterday, that was the biggest animation news of the week. Makes sense. I mean, here's Guillermo del Toro with his, his Pinocchio, his passion project that he's been trying to get made for years. And so here we are, we're prepping that, and then this itty-bitty, teeny, tiny piece of news breaks about... Ed Catmull, who, for those of you who don't know, basically the Ubermeister, now that, that John Lasseter is left, well, uh, John Lasseter is still in the process, uh, officially, yes. of, of leaving Pixar and Disney. But to have Ed Catmull announce that he's retiring, this is really end of an era stuff. Yeah, it's it's pretty crazy. I think we're going to get into it a little bit more later, but it's it's interesting because his legacy in many ways is going to be just as complicated as uh as Mr. Lassiter's when he leaves. Yeah. All right, so let's let's hold off on that. Let's kick out to the second half of the show, but uh, to, to jump right into it. You know, again, so here we are. Guillermo after all these years and he's just come off of winning the Academy Award for The Shape of Water. That picture he took home best director, uh, best picture. It's Hollywood. What do you do with your pile of chips at a moment like that? And there were a lot of us Disney fans that were hoping that finally the 2010 at Comic-Con when he announced his Haunted Mansion project. Yeah. You know, and (laughs) didn't you send me pictures of him and Ryan Gosling? Oh, yeah. When was that? Ooh, I don't even know when that was. I mean, he had Ryan Gosling ready to go as Mm -hmm. the lead of the Haunted Mansion. Yeah, I've got here that was April of 2015. God, that predates La La Land as well. I mean, jump ahead to April 2016, and uh, he's talking about he's still working on the Haunted Mansion. He's still, you know, he's got a fourth draft of this thing written. And and for some reason, Disney won't turn the key on it. So he defaults to Shape of Water, which, of course, in ironic, is kind of Creature of the Black Lagoon meets Disney's Beauty and the Beast. And yeah. And do you remember when he was making a competing Beauty and the Beast that was set to star Emma Watson and he had to let her out of that project to do oh the Disney Beauty and the Beast? God, you're right. Holy cow. Yeah. All right. It kind of a story of New Hollywood because look at where he's doing it. He's not doing it in any of the quote-unquote established studios. This is for Netflix. Right. Given that he's... He's done Troll Hunters there, which you've sung the praises of it. It makes sense that this would be where he sets it up. But, oh, my God, when you look at the team of people he's assembled to do this. Right. For starters, we've got the Jim Henson Company. I, you know, This is going to be a co-production for them. And, and let's remember Henson. Henson's actually made a run at, at Pinocchio previously. It was that... 1996, The Adventures of Pinocchio with Martin Landau and... Jonathan Taylor Thomas. There we go. Yes, I, rem- I remember that movie. I, s- I saw that theatrically for some reason. Did did we? And did you crack and tell them where the missile bases were after you saw that movie? <laughs> 
Yes, yes, oh. I did. Okay, I, interesting little side note here. Henson supposedly, along with Steve Barron, the, 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 the director of the project, they took that initially to Disney because they really did want to do something with Pinocchio. And this is Henson during the period where Eisner is still there and is still a big enthusiast about, you know, the legacy of Jim Henson. But they, Disney passed on the project. But all right, so we've got Henson involved. We've got Shadow Machine, the folks behind BoJack. They're going to be doing this, and it's stop motion. Yeah, and the puppets are being built by McKinnon and Saunders, who did the puppets for uh, Corpse Bride. Yeah, and then you've got Patrick McHale, you know, the kind of over the garden wall you know that that wonderfully creepy but authentic in fact my, my daughter alice was telling me about you know the art design of that was supposedly driven by the fact he came up to new england at one point and i guess it was conquered lexington you know that sort of thing sort of colored mm-hmm. what he wanted to do for the design of that but we've got mark gustison from the fantastic mr fox co-directing I mean, this is really a who's who of modern animation, you know, all coming yeah. together to do this thing. Here's Guillermo's quote about the project. And no art form has influenced my life and my work more than animation. And no single character in history has had as deep a personal connection to me as Pinocchio. And in our story, Pinocchio is an innocent soul with an uncaring father who gets lost in a world he cannot comprehend. So <laughs> I think we're, we're wandering a little far afield of how Disney handled <laughs> this material. Don't get me wrong, Drew. I love this. Literally, this is an all-star team coming together to make Pinocchio, which, which again, is kind of problematic material. I mean, there have been some, some wonderful books written about Walt Disney's struggles to take this material and, and, and craft right. it. Also, I'm kind of intrigued about setting this in the 1930s. What concerns me is I have seen Guillermo assemble all-star teams before. I mean, yeah. remember back in 2011, we had his Mountains of Madness? Yep. He had Tom Cruise had agreed to sign in this thing. James Cameron was going to produce. Uh, ILM was on board to do the effects. And Universal had agreed to put up a budget of $170 million to make this thing. But the problem here is the, the, the H.P. Lovecraft novella that this thing was based on is infamously dark and gory. And the studio was like, look, I will let you make this, especially with this talent and this team in place, if you agree to deliver a film that's a PG-13 rating. And right. and Guillermo pushed back and said, geez, I know with this material, it's probably going to be an R, and Universal, even with, again, Cameron and Cruz and ILM, you know, all in place, said, nah, and they walked away. Right. I have to assume, given that Netflix has already worked with Guillermo on Trollhunters and more to the point, this is this guy's first project on the heels of the, the Oscar-winning, you know, Shape of Water, that they'll stay on board. But I wonder, given the, what he's saying about his take on this material, that Everybody knows what they're getting themselves into here. Yeah, I mean, I think that it is, though, a good indication that his projects can come back from the dead because, you know, they announced this initially in 2012 mm-hmm. with a slightly different team behind it. Matthew mm-hmm. Robbins, who co-wrote some of his screenplays, including mm-hmm. Mimic, mm-hmm. Uh, wrote that version of the script. But then when he was doing press for Shape of Water last year, he said that the project was dead. So at least 
it gives me hope for Haunted Mansion or in that Mountains of Madness coming back because this seemed like it was all wrapped up and here we are, we're going to get it. And I also think that him being listed as a co-director might mean that he does another project at the same time. If you'll remember that he was supposed to start shooting the James Cameron produced remake of Fantastic Voyage last year. Oh God, you're Um, right. And uh, he kind of put that aside after all of the campaigning he had to do for Shape of Water kind of took it out of him. But Mm -hmm. who knows what his next actual live action project will be. You gotta wonder if, is this gonna be one of those Tim Burton, Henry Selleck situations where Tim sort of kick-started Nightmare Before Christmas because obviously he was the guy who came up with the poem and the characters. <laughs> but of course, that was back in the day when it was supposed to be, what, just a half-hour holiday TV special for, for Disney. And that then grew out to the property that we know today. And In fact, it, is this the weekend coming up where they, they're doing the Hollywood Bowl concerts? Yes, and at the same time, weirdly enough, they're also doing the thing at the El Cap the 4D experience where it snows and all of that stuff. It's the same weekend, which is kind of interesting. And um, this is the 25th anniversary, I want to say. of. Um, yep. But just this past weekend, we saw at the Chinese Theater, we saw the 20th anniversary uh, of the Prince of Egypt, the, the DreamWorks hand-drawn project. Did you ever get to see that? Yeah, I did. I I don't think a lot of it. It mm-hmm. seems very self-serious. I mean, I haven't seen it in years, but mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, it, that's a fascinating movie for a number of reasons, mm-hmm. and we can do a whole Prince of Egypt thing later, but yeah, I mean, how has your opinion of that movie well, changed in the 20 years it's been? It's kind of ironic, because we're, we're in a period where Prince of Egypt is taking on new life. The panel was on Sunday, because on Saturday... The stage musical version of Prince of Egypt. There was a production of it that's been running out at the Tukak Amphitheater and Center for the Arts out in Ivan, uh, Utah. It's been running since July, but you know they they ended this this multi week run of this this epic production and on stage all these Stephen Schwartz songs really really landed well. And here we are talking about Pinocchio because. That was, Stephen Schwartz wrote the music for Prince of Egypt, which was released in 1998, and his follow-up project. Did you remember this Geppetto, the, the live-action TV musical that Disney did? Vaguely. that Dick Van Dyke was Geppetto, correct? Oh, no, no, no. Well, that's that's the... That was, oh, that's what he was supposed to be, Dick That's Dick right. It, it wound up, they defaulted to Drew Carey. Because, oh my, yes, of course, yeah. yeah. Oh my God. Well, yeah, I mean, it, it, as it was explained to me by folks at Disney that what they were planning on doing was initially the big gimmick of this project was was going to be the first time that Dick Van Dyke and Julie Andrews had starred together in a project since Mary Poppins back in 1964. And so Stephen Schwartz writes this score, and the idea was that Dick Van Dyke was going to play Geppetto, and Julie Andrews was going to play the Blue Fairy. And I want to say that this is the same period of time that Julie Andrews had that operation. Right, that she couldn't sing anymore. Yeah, and so, you know, she bowed up. And then, an interesting little default, I hear. So Disney's like, well, you know, we we still want Dick Van Dyke to star in this thing, but we we need somebody of equal stature to pair with him. And it's like... 
well, duh, you know, why don't we just team up Dick Van Dyke and Mary Tyler Moore? Oh, that would have been so good. I don't know if you remember this, Geppetto, but the Blue Fairy in this one is is kind of obnoxious. Yeah. But when Mary Tyler Moore wouldn't commit to it, Dick bowed out, and so we ended up with Drew, who, by the way, did... A pretty good job. But but from what I understand, his appearance became a recurring joke on whose line is it anyway, <laughs> that they would all make fun of him. Well, you know, you know how they would make those spoofy episodes, I want to say, either for Halloween or April for At one point on one of the episodes, they brought the kid in who played Pinocchio in in the, the TV movie in it full makeup. And, and Drew Carey was like, get out of here, kid. <laughs> you know, just like... <laughs> And, and But again, to give you some idea when this was going on, I think the kid's exit line is, like, I see dead people. <laughs> that had a strong score by Stephen Schwartz. And that ended up become a stage musical that Disney now makes available to regional markets, you know, high schools, that sort of thing. It's, I think it's now it's called My Son Pinocchio, the story of Geppetto. Oh, uh, Jesus. But speaking of Mr. Schwartz, do you remember earlier this year there was that bidding war for this sort of mysterious Stephen Schwartz project about Hans Christian Andersen? Yes. I've got some notes here about the story of this thing. It's supposedly about a musical fantasy about Hans Christian Andersen. It, it's with the gimmick being that as a young man, he gets trapped in a world of his own imagination. And as Hans searches for a way back to reality, he comes face to face with characters from his own fairy tales nearly all of whom try to trap him in their world forever. So the pitch evidently was that this is the musical Harry Potter. Oh, okay. So every studio that was bidding on this was going after a potential movie franchise that could then be translated into a musical for the stage like Frozen. Who ends up winning the thing but Fox 2000? Which, if I'm understanding how the Disney acquisition has gone, that means his property is now owned by Disney. Mm-hmm. A, who makes it? And B, where does it end in the, the Disney distribution food chain? Yeah, I mean, what's interesting too is that looking at this, it was supposed to be shot this year and released this Christmas. It was, they said they were fast-tracking it for a holiday release mm. because they won the rights back in February and Ansel Elgort... Mm. From Baby Driver, which I don't know if you've watched Baby Driver, but mm. you should. It's on cable now every every day. It was supposed to be Hans Christian Andersen, but it doesn't look like there's been much movement since. Yeah. So. so I don't know if you read read the Stacy Schneider interview. I think she did with the, the Hollywood Reporter lately, but it just there's been a lot of stuff obviously over at Fox that got the brakes tapped. And now I guess I'm hearing that they could have the Fox acquisition wrapped by as early as January. Yeah. Finally, Disney will be sort of deciding who goes where, what, where, when. There's a lot of stuff about the Disney-Fox deal and how that will be impacting things. I mean, for example, that very mysterious thing of Don Bluth going to the Disney lot. Yeah, what was that? My understanding is it, it was related to... Projects that Don has worked on previously. Okay. Things that, that will get revived under, you know, this new Disney Fox thing. So, uh, circling back on Prince of Egypt now. This past weekend, they had a panel at the, the Chinese Theater. I wish we'd been able to get somebody there because 
they brought in the three directors and of course who's part of that team but Brenda Chapman mm-hmm. who you know obviously probably has some very definite opinions in regard to Mr. John Lasseter who's left the Disney company uh, you know or in the process of leaving the Disney company I guess he's got his cardboard boxes ready now right all the toys have been taken down off the shelf I'm sure and then Ed Catmull but before we do, all right, folks, we have to sort of gather folks together, get ourselves together here. So if you give Drew and I a minute, we'll be right back, okay? <laughs> and we're back. As you mentioned, this gets problematic. Well, should we talk about his his background? Because what's interesting about him is he was just a computer scientist. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right? And, he was, and, he's the... He was a nerd, essentially. Well, but but kind of the uber nerd. If you go back into the history of CG, Ed occupies th- this amazing role. I mean, very, very, very early on, he was one of the guys who did breakthrough stuff. I mean, as far back as 72, Ed was, was sort of tapped as a guy to be reckoned with because he did a CG version, a computer animated version of his left hand. And that doesn't sound like much today, but back then, it was such a huge thing to see this done realistically, done in such a way that they actually, the folks who were making the sequel to Westworld, Future World, actually bought the rights to use this on a computer monitor in the film to show this is the future. You know how it's the future? Because they have CG hands in here. Right. And it sort of didn't, didn't they do the... Um genesis project graphics too and star trek well yeah uh, eventually when he gets in with you know the lucasfilm group i want to say that's 79 or thereabouts yeah 79 yes he's in there and when you're an old fart like me and you you got to see star trek wrath of khan in theaters back in 82 i mean the, the first time you saw the genesis effect that planet flyover and the terraforming and that sort of thing that was mind-blowing and Ed was right in the middle of that group. But George did a lot of great work with, again, that, that was the Lucasfilm imaging group, I want to say. But then, you know, George got involved in a pretty bitter divorce and needed to make a pretty sizable financial settlement to, to his ex-wife. And so part of the way he raised money was he sold off the Lucasfilm imaging group to Steve Jobs. And so... Ed's in that pile of people, John Lasseter's in that pile of people who who go over with Jobs, who at that point is getting the his Pixar computers yeah. up, up and running. And in fact, that's the thing people forget is that the whole point of all of these Pixar shorts that we know from back then, Tin Toy and Red's Dream, and they were all supposed to be used to sell hardware and software they you know they, yeah pixar was sort of backed into making films yeah i mean when pixar spun off he was only the chief technical officer yeah so yeah. he was not this towering exec that he is now mm-hmm. and then from there there wouldn't have been a pixar if disney hadn't set up this separate production deal with tim burton they had set up this outside production company so henry Selleck could direct nightmare before christmas and I want to say, what was it? Katzenberg kept trying to get Lasseter to come back and direct at Disney, right? Yes, yes. And John was like, well, I really like Pixar. And could you maybe hire us to make a movie for you guys? And 
Katzenberg was like, well, yeah, we just sort of did that with Tim Burton. So, okay, we'll, we'll do the same thing with you guys. And so that's how we wound up with Toy Story, which became this monstrous hit. To give Steve Jobs credit, he I want to say it was like a week, 10 days after Toy Story was initially in theaters in November of 95 that he took Pixar public and it, what, like overnight became a billion dollar company? Yeah. And Catmull and and Lasseter, because they were, you know, crucial parts of the team, you know, the, these two men became very, very wealthy and very, very powerful almost overnight. And then just to sort of fast forward through the Disney story, they signed a deal for, I want to say, seven pictures total after, I guess there was initially a three picture deal. And on the heels of the success of that, uh, that was extended into a five-picture deal, but not counting the two pictures they were working on. And then in 2003, it all falls apart. (laughs) Jobs announces that they can't come to terms with Disney and they're going to shop themselves around. And it's a pretty dark, bleak period. And But then at the same time, you have the Save Disney effort and... Basically, Michael Eisner gets told, you know, maybe it's time for you to move on. Right. So, what, September of 2005, Michael goes into the, you know, walks off into the sunset. Bob Iger ends up in charge of the Walt Disney Company. It's the Hong Kong Disneyland story, right? Yes, which is that Bob Iger was in the, at the opening of Hong Kong Disneyland and looked out and saw that the only recognizable characters from, what, the last 20 years... Mm-hmm of the company were all Pixar characters. There was not one Disney character in there. There were no Treasure Planet characters Mm -hmm. in the parade or anything. So that's when he decided, like, we've got to just put put everything aside and and just get bringing these guys on board. January of 2006, the Walt Disney Company buys Pixar for $7.4 billion. And this was the first... Of you know, obviously, as we know now, a, a series of big acquisitions from Mr. Iger. We, we get, that got followed by Marvel in, in 2009 and Lucasfilm in 2012 and, and now teeny tiny little company called Fox. But the deal that Iger basically made was just he turns to, to Cat Mulney, turns to Lasseter, and it's like, this isn't just Pixar making movies for Disney. We want you to fix feature animation in Burbank and and Ed and John are right in the middle of all of that and at a point where the relationship could not have been any worse between mm. the two companies oh yeah it should be noted yeah <laughs> right like Disney had set up Circle 7 which was supposed to produce low-cost sequels to Pixar movies including a uh, follow-up to Monsters University and a, and a Toy Story 3 that was completely different mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah but the fact that they were now in control of Disney Animation, Pixar, Disney Toon Studios, and sort of the creative direction of Imagineering all overnight is pretty amazing. Absolutely. But this came at a cost. Ed and John, for example, the schedule is, it was explained to me, what was it, that they they spent two days a week down in Burbank. I want to say they started their week at Pixar on Monday. They then flew down to Disney they were there Tuesday and Wednesday, and then they were back up to Emeryville unless John had to stay down and consult on what was going on at Imagineering. But there was this whole period of, you know, there, there were films that were in the works already, especially films at Disney like Rapunzel and Braided or American Dog or 
know, a day with Wilbur Robinson that, frankly, John didn't seem to like. Nick Ranieri has this amazing page on Facebook where he talks about working on Wilbur Robinson and yeah that was fascinating yeah and and just you know how for example here's John Lasseter who sits down with Steve Anderson who after he shows him the movie and for the next six hours explains like why I don't like your villain and how you need to change this movie and I guess they only had a a couple of months but they changed 60% of the film yeah and meanwhile here's Ed who has to handle it's like, okay, so how do we get Disney up to speed? And he's he wades in as the chief technical officer for both studios. And it's a tough time because John makes this commitment almost immediately coming through the door that if you know if you can't draw, you don't belong in this building. And he you know announces that he wants to revive hand-drawn animation at Disney. You and I were both writing about the company during this period and prior to John coming through the door there was computer animation and there was traditional animation yes and then suddenly when Lasseter comes through the door it's like well no 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 there's CG and there's hand-drawn right and supposedly this edict had come down directly from John because he didn't like the idea that what he worked in wasn't traditional so (laughs) we needed a, a new term for this because this is Hugely expensive to do this, the $7.4 billion acquisition, plus retooling the studio, plus reviving hand-drawn for Princess and the Frog and for the Winnie the Pooh feature. And so there's this tremendous financial pressure on both companies, and Ed gets involved in this in kind of a weird way. It's kind of a hard thing to explain, but we can try. Now, I want to say... Was it Disney, Pixar, and Lucasfilm? Was that? Oh no! It was. It Blue Sky was involved. DreamWorks was involved. It was. It was industry wide, but from what I understand, Catmull was sort of the chief architect of this scheme, mm-hmm. which he even admitted to in a deposed uh, interview back in 2013. He sort of, he sort of never apologized about this, and basically what it was was. There was sort of this gentleman's agreement between all of the studios that they wouldn't hire from each other's talent pool mm-hmm. and that they would keep wages at a minimum to avoid skyrocketing. Now, supposedly this started around the time that DreamWorks and Disney split because there was a lot of intense you know, activity on that front and not a lot of trained animators who could do the job. Mm-hmm. Now, where it gets kind of weird is now there's mm-hmm. thousands of animators that can do this job and they were still doing it. They mm-hmm. were they still had this kind of practice of keeping these animators down. And there's some really interesting dialogue from, from various animators about how this kind of hurt them and mm-hmm. how it hurt their careers. Yeah, each company ended up uh, there was a giant lawsuit about it, and Disney paid out almost $100 million in damages. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. It was. And let's remember that we're talking two and three years ago when this is starting to make its way through the courts, and the studios are desperate to keep it out of the courts and out yeah. of the public eye and that sort of thing. And that whole time during that period, Ed was really the fall guy, given that he seemed to be, you know, the center character in this. It's like, is Ed going to get fired? Is Ed going to have to resign? Is Ed going to have to step away? And 
that's what was so ironic about this time last year, where suddenly we're dealing with these stories about John Lasseter having to apologize and step away from being in charge of Disney and Pixar. Because just a year or two before that, it's like, wow, is Ed going to have to go down? Yeah, I mean, well, but that's the other part of this whole thing, right? Is that he is is seen as someone who knew about Lasseter's behavior and also helped create this kind of fraternity-like atmosphere Mm -hmm. at Pixar, which you just brought up Brenda Chapman, Mm -hmm. and we don't need to go into that, but that is a chief example of that yeah so his his legacy is is pretty muddled but what what's interesting is that none of these hollywood reporter write-ups or variety write-ups mention the the wage fixing scandal so as much as he took the heat Mm -hmm. he was unapologetic Mm -hmm. and this is not something that's haunting him and and his legacy yet if you're familiar with like the career of charlie chaplin there were trials about him being involved with 14 or 15-year-old girls. I mean, yeah, if you go back to the the 30s and the 40s, he was more in the, the headlines, not as the, the great you know cinematic artiste. It was this guy who has a thing for young girls. But, you know, you add a few decades and the headlines fade and it becomes all about the work. And if you look at what John Lasseter and Ed Catmull the films that were produced both at Pixar and at Disney while they were, they were calling the shots. I mean, that's an amazing body of work. But, you know, right now, if we talk about Ed Catmull, if we talk about John Lasseter, there's always going to be that asterisk next to, to both their names. You know, John Lasseter, the guy who maybe one too many hugs, and Ed Catmull, the guy who wage-fixing and took money out of the, the pockets of some well-deserving animators... Again, to bring this full circle back to Prince of Egypt, a lot of the reason that Ed and the other studios decided we have to do something about this is what happened out ahead of the production of Prince of Egypt. And that's when Katzenberg walked out the door at Disney in August of 1994, he took his Rolotex with him. Yeah. Have you made it? On Nick Ranieri's page to the point where he talks about the phone calls he got from Katzenberg and being taken out to breakfast, you know, trying, as Jeffrey is trying to get Nick to come join the group of animators from Disney who left and for ridiculously higher wages to come work for DreamWorks. Yeah, I mean, that was, people say that, I mean, I think I was in the DreamWorks book, Mm -hmm. uh, The Men Who Would Be King, but they talk about how at the animation studios at that time, every single car in the parking lot was a Porsche mm-hmm. or a BMW. Those were the days when you were an animator uh, and those two were fighting it out. This is a gold mine. You have to go you know, take a look at this thing at Facebook. But there's a wonderful story that Nick tells when they're making Hercules. Hades in Hercules basically is James Woods doing a Jeffrey Katzenberg's impression. Okay. And so what ends up happening is, do you remember the, the, the last time you see Hades and Hercules? Hercules has rescued Meg from sort of the swirling whirlpool of souls. And, you know, it's the moment right. where he proves himself a god. And so now Hades is freaked out because he realizes, oh, my God, he's a god. Now I can't kill him. And his dad is going to come down here and hurt me. And it's like, you know, could you put in a good word with Zeus? Evidently, Nick actually pitched to James, and I guess they actually recorded this. Hades says he's trying to explain 
what he was up to. It's like, I'm sorry, I had a dream in the works. Wow. Yeah, that, that he wanted to include a DreamWorks joke in Hercules. And I, I guess in the end, I guess they recorded it, they animated it. Nobody had the guts to show it to Eisner. Yeah, this was very, very, very personal. It took these movies from a position where they were expensive to make to when you, you know, doubled and tripled and quadrupled, you know, some of the star supervising animators' salaries it made it almost impossible for the studios to recover their costs, at least on initial releases. And so that was why they sort of turned to Catmult and it's like, well, you gotta, can you help us get this under control? And that's why he remained un unapologetic. He felt like he was doing something that helped sort of right the ship that, that put so many of these films back on a financial footing where they could make money and you got to remember that until just recently, did you see how much, for example, Tangled supposedly cost to make after factoring in what they wrote off on uh, Rapunzel? Oh, the version? Yeah. No, I don't know how much. $250 million. Ooh, that is not a movie that looks like it's $250 million. No, no, no. I mean, it's, it's <laughs> don't get me wrong, it's, a, it's still a wonderful film. and But at the same time, when, when you had development costs like that, and, and years and years of, of work that had been, been done on a film that never made it to the screen, you can understand it. And Ed Catmull coming through the door at Disney, and it's like, okay, you know, we got to get these financials under control. Right. And, you know, and in fact, that continues to this day. I mean, you on the last podcast, you were just talking about Brad Bird in Incredibles 2 and how fast they got that movie made and how many scenes they cut because... Brad made that decision because it really didn't drive the story, or at least in a direction that he wanted. But at the same time, it would have been, you know, ridiculously expensive to animate. Yeah, in fact, I was just watching some of the special features. I don't know if you've gotten your copy of the, the Blu-ray yet that comes out in a couple of weeks, but... Mm -hmm. One of the animators on there says it's been incredibly hard because of, of how little time we've had and we all wish we had more time. But if we had more time, we would probably all die <laughs> because they were just working so hard on this for such a condensed amount of, of time. Yeah, I mean, Catmull and Lassiter, their their legacy is it cannot be overstated. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, it is just an incredibly complicated thing to wade through and i'm sure you've read his book too about like kind of you know creativity inc sort of you know managing your business with imagination or whatever that that book is and it's like you can't help but think oh my god this guy was just nickel and diming every single person that worked for him while well, he's you know creating these masterpieces that will live on you know beyond all of us for however long but yeah it's a very interesting it's an interesting scenario and It'll be interesting seeing what he does after he retires, whether it'll be philanthropic or, or whatever else. But Well, and, and hopefully, Drew and I will get to talk about some of this stuff at our Pixar in the Parks event, which is just a couple, what, two weeks now? Ago, yes. Away? I wonder if we should be talking about it. The last I heard, we, we had like one spot left. I don't know if... I may, it may be yeah, sold out at this point. I'll have to check with... I think with, we uh, better be sold out. <laughs> <laughs> the check with Tammy. To Tammy. But uh, yeah, the, this is the event that, that Drew and I are doing down at Walt Disney World. I want to say the 8th through the 12th of November. And we're going to be wandering around the parks. We're going to be sharing stories about 
every you know the history of Pixar and how they they brought you know their characters into various ride shows and attractions of the park and I would imagine we'll be able to, to, to if folks have questions about Ed and John we'll, we'll get to those as well yes and we do have one listener question if you want to do try to do that real quick or if you want to save it for another sure episode. no 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 what do you got so this is a question from Jonathan who wrote to us on our uh, Bandcamp page and he said he's basically asking what happened to the live action 2D animated Phineas and Ferb feature film I told you it was a big one. That might, we might have to save that, but... Long story short, this is Dan Povenmire and Jeff Swampy Marsh, and I want to say they had a script that everybody at the studio was, was very enthusiastic about. Right now, they are shooting a live-action... Well, actually, they've wrapped production at this point, but it's done, but a live-action Kim Possible movie? Right, for a channel. Yeah, and yeah. I want to tell you that I remember talking with Robert Scully and, and Mark McCorkle about it was kind of the same situation. They wrote a, a Kim Possible script, and then they were asked to, uh, you know, there was that superhero high school movie, uh, Hero High, I think it was called. Oh, Sky High. Sky High, yes. And yeah, the, the thing which is, is very underrated, by the way. It, no, it's a, it's, it's a wonderful movie. It really, really is. And But here's the thing. They'd written this Kim Possible script that everybody at the studio loved. And, you know, so they, they turn around and the people at Disney, wow, we love this. and But we have this Sky High script that needs some work. Could you guys... Do some, you know, could you maybe do a rewrite? Could you punch this up? And, and Alvaro Markle, you know, well, sure, you know, while we're waiting for our Kim Possible movie to get made. And, you know, they do the rewrite, and suddenly Dee's like, ooh, we like Sky High more than we like the Kim Possible thing. And in much the same way as happens on, on Studios a lot, that here was this Phineas and Ferb script that everyone loved. And the notion was that Dr. Doofenshmirtz, as it was explained to me, that it was going to start off. The first, like, 10 or 15 minutes were going to be animated. Then Dr. Doofenshmirtz invented an innator that allowed him to enter the real world. And that was Jim Carrey, right? Well, that was supposedly the plan. And I'm a fan of of certain Jim Carrey projects, but he kind of a difficult guy to deal with. The way he approaches projects and runs hot and cold supposedly became a factor. And in the end... You know, there was there was a management change at the studio. I want to say Alan Horn came in during the same period, and it was like, that's a TV project. And I, I want to say for a time, Disney Toon, I, I guess it took a step down. But of course, when you, you went over to Disney Toon, and suddenly when you're in that price bracket, you can't afford a Jim Carrey. And, and it was kind of conditional on getting a big name, to do Doofenshmirtz, and that's kind of where we ended. Though, uh, just to try to end this on a positive note, remember, we're, we have a Kim Possible movie that's been shot, that's going out through the Disney Channel. We now have Disney Play, where we've seen you know, a whole bunch of projects that had been at Disney and hadn't necessarily, that Disney had developed and you know had scripts ready, but they just couldn't, you know, it's like, geez, I don't know if we want to put this out theatrically. Who knows? Especially now that we live in this universe where Phineas and Ferb seem to live just a, you know, a couple of miles away from the folks with Milo Murphy's Law. In fact, yes, finally, the crossover event show, uh, which is already aired in Japan, by the way. You, you can go on YouTube now and watch 
it's in 10 minute chunks you know when milo murphy and the phineas and ferb characters interact but i guess they're for some reason they're holding it till january for the states weird yeah but uh we will finally get to see that along with the second season of uh, Milo Murphy. Oh, 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 oh. And, uh, before we go home, here we should also acknowledge that the second season of DuckTales is, is just gotten underway. And uh, So good. What Did it, you love this week's episode? What I loved about it was the fact that it it was just an episode. It wasn't yeah. a... It wasn't tied into the mythology. I mean, the sort of acknowledgement that, you know, mom's lost in space. But it was just... It was fun writing. And... I love how they have decided to do this thing where Huey, Dewey, and Louie are distinctly different personalities. And Yeah. Beautiful character animation, too. I just, every week, I, I it doesn't matter which studio does it, I mm-hmm. just am over the moon about the how expressive these characters are and how amazing the uh, the animation is it's the performances are just amazing and not to set, send you down this path through but if have you <laughs> been to target yet and seen the ducktail toys well i haven't seen very many because they are always sold out i mean i've seen the the empty pegs where <laughs> they should be yeah yeah that, that that see that's one of the joys of living in new hampshire there's not as many nerds per square mile yeah especially when i'm going my my target is the one down the street from uh walt disney oh. uh television animation so yeah i feel like they all just go there and buy buy the stuff oh good luck you know but but no they're they're beautiful i mean just the on model wonderfully designed figures and, and that sort of thing but but yeah very much looking forward to the second season of ducktales and this guillermo pinocchio if, if it actually happens but that's something we'll discuss on on future episodes of fine-tuning so and one day i w- we will do i will spearhead this project the complete history of guillermo's shingle disney shingle that never got off the ground oh, disney we, double dare you we have to do that we'll save that for another show so <laughs> Uh, on behalf of Mr. Taylor, I want to thank you folks for listening today. And, oh, oh Drew, if, you, if people are looking to, you know, to hear your dulcet tones between now and then, where can they find you? Well, you can find my writing and uh, other shenanigans on moviephone.com. And I, I implore everyone to listen to my Mission Impossible podcast, Light the Fuse. Jim, if you haven't done it already, I'm going to make you listen to it all the way from your drive from New Hampshire to Florida. So get ready for that. Well, again, we were talking about Tom Cruise earlier, you know, just <laughs> so sure, sure, I'll do that. Uh, now, on my side of the fence, I do the Disney Dish podcast with Len Testa. I, of course, do this wonderful fine tuning podcast with Mr. Drew Taylor. I do the Marvelous Disney podcast with uh, Aaron Adams. I do the Looking at Lucasfilm. In fact, I'm recording with Dan Z tonight. On behalf of Mr. Taylor, uh, thank you for listening to this latest episode of Fine Tuning, and we'll be back again soon. Be sure to tune in again for another fine episode of Fine Tuning with Jim Hill and Drew Taylor. <laughs>